You're listening where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Of all the kinds of soldiers to serve in the Civil War, there is no image more romantic than that of the Virginia Cavalier. But it was not all swords and roses, moonlight and magnolia. The Civil War memoirs of a Virginia cavalryman by Lieutenant Robert T. Hubbard, Jr. tell a different story of privations, friendly fire incidents, and bad discipline. We'll talk to the editor of this fascinating memoir, Thomas P. Nansig, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Prokopovich coming to you this week from my office on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a cold February afternoon. The show, as always, is my consists of the opinions of the guests and my own opinions and not those of the university. The university's opinions are indeed taken up with more important administrative matters like the recent release of 65,000 personal files, including Social Security numbers, exposed on the website in the, of the university a few few weeks ago. Um, if and if my reaction to this is, if somebody wants to steal my identity, they can have it. Uh, but hopefully, nothing bad will come of it. It may have been a temporary glitch, but in any case, that certainly keeps the university plenty busy with its own legal matters. No time to check up on what we're saying on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, some people have asked, and I appreciate the concern uh, for an update on the application for tenure that I mentioned uh, some shows ago. And I'm happy to report all is going well. It is pre- the application that I submitted has proceeded through the department and through the dean's office. Uh, in the last few days, more bureaucratic emails have come along saying that last year's form is being replaced by next year's form, but in between nobody knows which form to use and all the applications are being reviewed by different forms and everyone's confused as to what's going on. Uh, This falls into the category of what uh, John Y. Simon, a former guest on the show, has described as the 
leave the the unlimited uh, uh, perversity of academia. Uh, there's no there's no telling what can happen even with something that ought to be settled. But hopefully this is all temporary. We'll blow over shortly, and we'll move along on that progress toward the goal of all academics, the status of not ever having to do any work ever again. In the meantime, though, we're here to do the show, talk about uh, the Civil War, and in particular, a very interesting memoir, a book called The Civil War, Memoirs of Virginia Cavalrymen, uh, and the book is edited by Thomas P. Nansig. Tom, are you there? I am here, Jerry, in your beloved Ann Arbor. Ah, wonderful. Go blue. My old... uh, old stomping ground for many years, uh, four years as an undergrad, and then since we had not won the national football championship in those years, and I thought we could do it if I could just hang around three more years, I went to law school there. No luck. Uh, didn't happen then either, but I did get three more years of uh, eating lotus in the land of uh, academic bliss. Well, I was just walking through the law quad this afternoon, and visiting, as you may remember, the ugly. Yes, the the ugly, the undergraduate library, the, the well well acronymed. The the ugly is a, a hideous building. Oh, it's been it's been upgraded. You'll be happy to know about uh, eight years ago, and it's now the Harold Shapiro Library. Oh, after the former president. Yes. Well, that's, well that that's an improvement. I get so it doesn't have those sort of blue panels that made it look like a child's construction of the 1960s? No, in fact, everybody noticed that, and I think those are the first items to come off the walls. Ah, well, that will be an improvement then. I'll have to go back uh, sometime and check it out. I do have many fond memories. Uh, my my uh, now wife and girlfriend, Emily, and I often would buy a bag of Dutch mints at the long-gone uh, uh, Drake? candy, Drake's candy store. Yes. Uh, and go hang out in the ugly and read old back issues of New Yorker. This is what academic geeks do for what passes a Saturday night date. Uh, and look at the cartoons and ads and so on. We tried to do that here at East Carolina, but we discovered <laughs> the library closes on Saturday night at about 6 p.m. Oh, my gosh. Realistically expecting no one to be studying at that hour. Uh, but gradually they're extending it with a goal ultimately of getting out to 24 hours because today's student really does study at the weirdest times. And uh, uh, if anything else, the faculty might want to go in there on Saturday night. (laughs) Well, uh, much is the same. I'm sure you'd be happy to hear. Uh, Some things are changing. However, if you ever took a class in the Freeze Building, the old Ann Arbor High School, it is tumbling down. They're tearing it down. Well, I, I'm not sure. As, as a public historian, I, I often get involved in uh, historic preservation clashes, and there were some certainly in Fort Wayne where I once lived where my opinion was, you know, that building may be old, but it's better uh, in rubble than, than standing. I think so. And I think the Freeze Building is one of those. Now, on the other hand, I spent time at William & Mary, and you have a hard time pulling down anything in Williamsburg. Ah, now that that is... Well, that gets us uh, toward the grounds of what we're going to talk about it does. Uh, in a moment here. But um, tell me how, how you got interested in this uh, as a Michigan uh, Wolverine, which, and I understand you, you have connections at Michigan State, so I can call you a Wolverine just to irritate you. <laughs> um, Not at all. I'm the only one of five sons in the family 
who cheers for the ugly helmets, the maize and blue. The other four, all having attended MSU as I did, can't stand it. Ah, well, well, good for you. <laughs> um, I had an opportunity when I graduated with a higher education administration master's degree at Michigan State to take a position at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, and my wife and I moved down and lived for four years with freshman students in a freshman dormitory. And while I was there, I joined the local Williamsburg Roundtable, which had only been going for a year or two, and was indoctrinated, you might say, into the Virginia uh, aspects of the Civil War, as opposed to having grown up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where the Civil War was a long time ago in a place far, far away. So after having worked four years in Williamsburg, my wife, by the way, uh, Barbara, worked as a costumed hostess for several years in Colonial Williamsburg and then joined us on campus as an administrator as well. And we packed up and moved to Farmville, Virginia, which may be familiar to some of the listeners. Farmville had the um, honor of hosting two rather august uh, visitors on consecutive evenings, Robert E. Lee one night and U.S. Grant the very next night, on their way out to Appomattox Courthouse. Well, to make a long story short, when we moved to Farmville, some of the first uh, people that I met were uh, people in the Lynchburg Civil War Roundtable, the closest roundtable to Farmville, among them, Ron Wilson, who was the historian at Appomattox Park. Uh, Chris Hawkins, another Wolverine who had moved down to become a historian at that time at Spotsylvania uh, Park and then moved on to, to Petersburg. And uh, Harold Howard. And that's really how I got involved because Harold was a school teacher in the uh, school year and was a seasonal um, interpreter at Appomattox Park. And Harold invited me to participate in writing one of the Virginia Regimental History Series books. My choice, he said, there are a few that have been taken. Bud Robertson was signed on. Bob Crick was signed on. And I thought, well, I lived in Williamsburg. I lived in Farmville. The 3rd Virginia Cavalry had um, uh, companies from both the Williamsburg Peninsula area and the south side, as they call anything below, below the James River, uh, Cumberland County, Prince Edward County, Halifax County, and such. So I thought, well, at least I've got a foot in both areas. I'll try that. And Harold was very gracious and very kind to invite me to participate. It took me about six years because we kept moving on to new jobs or graduate school. But in 1989, I finally was able to get back to him with about a, an 80-page uh, summarized history of the 3rd Virginia Cavalry, and, oh gosh, another 25 pages of roster of 1,600 men that served in the 3rd Virginia. And in 1989, that was published. Now, you, you mentioned you were at William & Mary for a time. You met some interesting students there, I gather. <laughs> yes, in fact, I had the pleasure of listening just the other day to your interview with one of my favorite uh, male students who, who lived in the dorm one year. Don Fons was an 18-year-old. And, of course, he's now at Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania um, Park as, as a historian. 
And Don uh, came up to me after uh, one of the trivia contests I used to host uh, once a semester. He came up to me after one of them, and he said, you know, Tom, I don't mean to correct you, but Grant was never the commander of the Army of the Potomac. It was always Meade. And I had asked some question that, that added Grant as a commander. And uh, we started to chit-chat, at which point he then told me who his father is, and I thought, honest to goodness, if I want to learn Civil War, I should ask this kid rather than uh, reading it in the books. Well, uh, that uh, uh, he was a, a great guest on the show. I learned a lot from him, and, and uh, certainly he has a great position there at that battlefield. And he sounded only about three years older than what I remember him in about 1976. Uh, well, it, it, it could be. Then you, uh, so you went on from there, uh, you end up in Ann Arbor, uh, where you are now. Coming back, uh, my wife to take a job with the university um, uh, as a staff member in the information technology uh, area, and I to return to graduate school to get my second master's degree, this time in library science, as it used to be called. Now it's called uh, School of Information, and uh, I think, and, and my specialty was in archives. So this certainly ties in with what we're doing here in terms of uh, studying the Civil War. Oh, exactly. And every time I had to uh, turn in a three- to five-page project paper or slideshow or something like that, you can guess that it was on something having to do either with the 3rd Virginia Cavalry Project that I was trying to finish up uh, or the Civil War, something on the official records as a reference tool, and I, I think the word got around amongst the teachers. I saw a few eyes roll when I would get up and say, well, I've done something on the Civil War. Uh, Jerry, it was a lot like going back to 7th or 8th grade and doing a, a book report. Now, what, what archives do you, uh, what, what archives are around there, Civil War-related archives in Michigan, that you find particularly of, of value? Well, the university has two wonderful archives, and I will mention first the one in which I trained, the Bentley Historical Archives, which serves as both the University of Michigan official archives for the institute, institution, rather, and uh, they also collect Michigania of all kinds, and so they hold uh, letters, um, journals, documents, and such. In fact, I believe Stephen Sears uh, published a, um, a journal by a young man in the 1st or 2nd Michigan Infantry uh, some years ago. Hayden, I think, was his name. And that came from the Bentley Historical. Um, it, it ran in with Sears' interest in the Peninsular Campaign, I believe, is what the connection was. Mm -hmm. uh, then the Clements Library is a privately uh, funded library endowed by a, a man named Clements who made big money in the uh, railroad and, and lumber industries in one way or another uh, back at the turn of the century. And he was a, uh, a bibliomaniac. He loved books and he loved American history going back to Columbus. And so he funded this uh, wonderful repository of items that uh, go back certainly through the Revolution and pre-Revolution, but they have, I think, an outstanding Revolutionary War collection. Uh, they also collect uh, Civil War letters and journals as well, not just Michigan, but from all over the country. Uh, the Clements is right on the campus next to the President's house. You probably passed it many times. Well, I've gone in it many times, actually. There you go. Um, is Mrs. Shy still uh, 
directing there or involved with that? I don't know her. John Dan is the director and will be retiring this coming year, I believe. Ah. And John has been there since uh, I arrived on the scene to take my archives classes and uh, done a wonderful job. And uh, it's really what I would call going into an old-fashioned archives where uh, uh, you need to state your business clearly. They don't invite every passing undergraduate to come in no. uh, because it's not, uh, it's not meant to be an undergraduate research library. Uh, it's meant to be a library for um, serious uh, historical researchers, social researchers. They have a, a huge cookbook collection that was just donated a year or two ago, American Cookery. And, um, and uh, I think it's considered one of the fine, fine archives, um, certainly in the country, uh, as far as its history collection. Yes, well, so if any listeners are doing uh, primary source research in the southeast Michigan area, you don't want to miss the Bentley or the Clements Library, too. Right, and of course, there are others, as you know, you've interviewed uh, people from the Burton Library uh, uh, down in Detroit, which you are probably familiar with. Yes. Uh, and of course, the State Library up in Lansing. I was the president of the State Archives Association for two years, so I, I'll probably insult somebody by not mentioning, you know, one of the archives, but uh, I do my best to spread the, uh, the glory. Well, that's good. You wouldn't happen to know Carolyn Texley by any chance. She's an archivist uh, at the... Lincoln Museum for many years in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. No, although we have probably passed if she has come to the Midwest Archives Association uh, conferences around throughout the Midwest, but the name doesn't uh, doesn't ring a bell with me. No, yeah, she did. She was formerly at, at uh, the archivist at Cranbrook. Uh, oh, sure, and I know Mark Coyer is now the archivist there, so he probably stepped in after her. Uh, that, that could well be. Well, I hear the music saying time for you guys to stop rambling about old times and get back to the Civil War. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get into the story of Lieutenant Robert Hubbard and his memoirs as a Virginia cavalryman, talking today with Thomas Nanzig on Civil War Talk Radio. Within war's tragedies, few things are more tragic than friendly fire incidents when soldiers kill their own comrades. We'll talk about a civil war incident of that nature when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com. 
World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tom Nansig, editor of the Civil War Memoirs of a Virginia Cavalryman, Lieutenant Robert T. Hubbard, Jr., well, Tom, this cavalryman obviously served in the Third Virginia, so I'm guessing that you came across his uh, memoir while you were researching that book. Is that right? Yeah, in fact, it was more than the eleventh hour. I think Harold was ready to go to press, and if I recall correctly, Bob Crick had tipped me into the fact that I had overlooked this wonderful journal that was at the University of Virginia special collections, and when I called down and inquired later that day, uh, they told me, oh gosh, it's 300 pages long. Well, as you can imagine, uh, trying to write a book of 75 to, say, 80 pages, uh, 300 doesn't quite fit in, uh, arithmetically or otherwise. So I had to pass on using it because I couldn't get down there at the time anyway, and yet I tucked it away in the back of my head and... um, some years later, my nephew, Ryan, was at the University of Virginia. I asked him to go over and check it out, and the rest was history. He said it looked good, and they had microfilmed it, which is my business right now. I'm in the microfilm business. And so thank God for microfilm. They sent it to me here in Ann Arbor, and I was able to look at the microfilmed journal. Uh, and it just it blew me away because, of course, I was already an admirer of the unit, and here was... Um, a perfect bookend, you might say. I had written uh, a, a, a history of it, but here was somebody from within who had written his history of his involvement, and I said, gee, this will make a terrific uh, accommodation to my earlier 3rd Virginia Cavalry. Well, one of the unique things about this memoir, uh, it seems to me, is that it's written immediately after the war, even before the war is over. I guess it comes out, he finishes in 1866, but he begins yeah. at, uh in 1865, before the war is over, so many memoirs that that are, are wonderful to read and entertaining are written uh, 10, 20, 30 years later. There's a film of memory. There's a desire to entertain the family rather than horrify them. There, there's a distance that creeps in. Sure, absolutely. This and this one he started, I surmised, while he was still recovering from a scalp wound he sustained on April 1st, 1865, at the Battle of Five Forks. He was, uh, he was put on a horse, uh, got to a, uh, a hospital train, which took him out to Farmville. From there, it was only about uh, a 25-mile ride north where he could recover at his father's plantation. He came from a rather well-to-do family. And I think in July, he said, I'm going to write it down while it's fresh in my head and while I've got my war letters and perhaps even a stack of, uh, of Richmond newspapers standing there next to him. Well, let's let's go back to the to the beginning uh, to the service. You mentioned he comes from a well-off family. He, in some ways, uh, Robert Hubbard really is the classic uh, Virginia Cavalier. Absolutely, he uh, attended college. Uh, his father was worth, I think I quoted in there, something on the order one year, uh, all of his land, slaves, uh, crops, and that fifty thousand dollars or something greater than that, perhaps. Um, uh, his father was a widower, but he took care to make sure that all of his boys and his one daughter got the opportunities. And uh, and Robert went off to Hampton, Sydney, the sole remaining all men's school in the country, I believe. 
Uh, right? gra- graduated uh, in, I think, 58 or 59, gave the valedictory address, and then after a year, I think, of tutoring his brothers at home, went to the University of Virginia as a law student. So typical uh, FFV, first families of Virginia-type background. And uh, atypical, though, in that, as you point out, his father's plantation was, was succeeding, that, that economically they were doing very well. Absolutely. He must have uh, uh, had a, a, a good feeling for what crops would succeed and what wouldn't. Tobacco, of course, was if it hadn't already crested, it was certainly cresting because it's so hard on the soil. Uh, cotton, of course, had moved to the, the, to the black soil area of the Deep South. And so whether they did some uh, tobacco, some wheat, uh, uh, who knows what other. Uh, uh, his father, Robert uh, Hubbard Sr., w- was doing well enough to keep a family of seven or eight children going right along. So when the war begins, uh, Robert enlists. His brother James also enlists. Yeah, his brother James is an interesting counterpoint because he was uh, an officer in the pre-war Virginia militia. He was his uh, uh, oldest brother and uh, was made lieutenant colonel of, I think it was the 44th Virginia, which was sent out into western Virginia mountains and ended up being voted out of office, uh, as happened to, of course, many of the officers from the early portion of the war when the organization came around in March and April of 1862. Robert, on the other hand, started out as a, as a private, as a trooper in the 3rd Virginia, and, of course, he had his older brother to emulate. He wanted to achieve some officer success, and he couldn't find a way to get elected. Well, there's, there's a, a sort of conflict there. This electing officers was common throughout the war, or through the, through the early years of the war yes. in the North and the South. But uh, somebody like, like Hubbard, who wants to get elected, can't, can't campaign for it, I, I guess, according to his own code of conduct. Right. He and and I and I quoted in the introduction uh, uh, General Lee's um, admonition to I think it was Tom Munford along the same line. Uh, don't be so anxious. I'll paraphrase. Don't be so anxious to get ahead if you are not selected. Once you show your abilities, uh, people will recognize it, and then they will you know put you at your proper station in life. And I suspect that's a gentleman's code of conduct from the old days. And, but in the case, this case of Hubbard, he, he ends up waiting rather a long time for people to recognize his proper station. Well, he did. The elections that uh, that we're referring to if, took took place in, in May and June of of '61 when the um, uh, regiment, when the company was organized, and and of course, uh, as you know, Jerry, uh, some of the older men who joined up uh, in that first flush of of recruiting found that. Um, Field and camp life was not really uh, to their liking. They they were finding it rather hard on their older constitutions. So some of them had to leave. Some died, unfortunately, as a result of camp illnesses, and um, and others were being elected to take their place. And Hubbard couldn't seem to get the votes because he didn't want to go against his gentlemanly upbringing by making deals. Basically, that's what it was. He had to make deals with people uh, to support them, and he said, you know, that's not the way it's done. He did stick around during the reorganization of the regiment in April 1862, and at that point, he gets a second lieutenancy. So it took a year for him to finally move up from that uh, private trooper status. 
the regiment goes into service initially on the Virginia Peninsula, and uh, after they get organized, train a little bit, they are down there. McClellan lands his huge army at the tip of the peninsula and starts creeping up toward Williamsburg, uh, uh, with the area you're familiar with, obviously. Right. And uh, you describe, from several points of view, from from both the memoir and some other letters that you you have uncovered, an incident uh, early, very early in the war, uh, involving Confederate troops firing on others. Uh, talk about that. Well, that's what I refer to as the Bagley incident. Um, apparently, in in that first uh, three or four months of the war, Confederate troops uh, determined, uh, and I think this was done at Manassas as well, uh, to wear um, some sort of uh, signal or symbol to show that they were Confederates, because, of course, there was so much confusion who was wearing what color uniforms. And so, in this case... Um, uh, T.R.R. Cobb, I believe, had his um, uh, part of his legion, or, or rather, it was Cobb's legion, I don't recall, I think Tom Cobb was there. Uh, they had wrapped uh, pieces of white cloth around their, their arms. Well, along came a couple of Virginia troopers from one of the companies in the 3rd Virginia who had been out scouting, and this uh, infantry group had been uh, out on the prowl as well. And uh, the troopers came up uh, on a road, and somebody challenged them. In fact, it was supposedly another cavalryman who was acting as a guide to the infantry. Uh, who is it? And they said, Virginia troopers. And they had their little white uh, rags on their arms. And for some reason, uh, their comrade shouted, uh, the hell you are, or words to that effect, and said, fire. Well, all of these Georgians on one side of a field or a road or what have you started firing across at the other side. Uh, these poor two Virginians lit out. One of them, I think, was wounded, and the other one had his clothes shot up. Uh, they didn't kill them. They weren't very good shots, apparently. Uh, but unfortunately, Major Bagley, uh, who was part of the infantry, uh, was shot and killed. Colonel Garnett's horse was crippled, it says here, and uh, I think somebody else was shot in the leg, and they could never quite figure out what the heck this scout was thinking. To put it in today's colloquialism, what was he thinking? So, I mean, this is a problem that, that continues to, to uh, dog the, the military in, in contemporary engagements in, in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, in every war since the Civil War to the present, every war before that, uh, sometimes you get this this issue of, of friendly fire. Stonewall Jackson is probably the most famous right, right. Uh, friendly fire casualty of the war. But there's really re- reading the account you you give here, and you, you print letters from several people. There's it's hard to understand. Uh, I mean, there is no particular explanation other than than panicky new soldiers uh, opening fire. Right, and, and I think the closest that I can come to uh, to comparing it to something today was the um, that skirmish in which uh, uh, Pat, uh, uh, the football player, Pat Tillman, Pat Tillman was was killed. There were people firing left, right, and center because, of course, they were just scared that they had walked into an ambush. And uh, uh, you you read these several accounts, both from Georgians and from Virginians, and you just wonder. Um, if everybody had a bad case of the jitters uh, in the war, oh, you know, Ben Butler had several thousands of troops down at Fort Monroe. Uh, they never knew when they were going to bump into somebody in the 
swamps and the wooded country down there in the Virginia Peninsula. Not a pleasant place to campaign, to say the least. No, and it's the site of the first really major battle uh, for the for the Third Virginia and for the the Army of the Potomac, for that matter, after uh, Bull Run at Williamsburg. Yes, the Third Virginia is involved in that, uh, at least on the on the margins. Right. The third had been all by themselves down on the peninsula. In fact, I'll, I'll insert one of their um, sort of reflected glory items. Their first commanding officer was one John Bell Hood. Uh, and uh, a quick story, uh, Hood showed up to take command, and he was captain. And the captains objected to his uh, taking command. Uh, apparently he was a lieutenant, that was it. Then, So he went back, and Magruder said, well, we'll make you a captain then. And then the captain said, but we rank you by date. And so he went back to Magruder, and Magruder said, fine, then you're a major. And so they had trained under, under Hood until Hood was sent off to take over the Texans. And, uh, and then they had this uh, 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 Johnston, uh, uh, Colonel Johnston was given command, but he was voted out of office. Uh, so uh, finally, uh, when Jeb Stewart brought his brigade down with uh, Joe Johnston's army in the uh, April-May uh, period of 1862, uh, the third was brigaded with them, and uh, and they finally got to see what real cavalry life was like. Uh, they had been divided up as scouts and couriers and such in the peninsula and hadn't really done much cavalry work. Uh, Williamsburg was, for the most part, an infantry battle, but Stuart was so anxious to get them out, uh, he ran his uh, brigade out at one point, and they came under artillery fire. He had his little horse uh, artillery firing back, and I guess they were ready for a uh, retreat by the Federal forces under uh, Hooker and Heinzelman, and it never occurred, so they basically had to turn around and get back out of the field of fire and, and screened the Army as it moved back up to Richmond in uh, the day after the battle. That would have been, what, May 6th, I guess, 1862. Did the Third Virginia ever get to participate in a classic charge, saber, sabers waving, plumes flying in the breeze? Well, it, it took a while, Jerry. Um, they were the new guys in the unit, and I am convinced that they were probably held back as reserve simply because neither Fitzley, who took over the um, infantry brigade from, uh, or cavalry brigade from, uh, from Stuart, uh, nor Stuart earlier, uh, they just didn't know who these guys were or how well led they were. And so it took until, uh, if I remember correctly, all the way up until um, just before Antietam before they really got into some full-scale cavalry activity, and that was at Boonesboro, Maryland, uh, when they got into it uh, right in the middle of the village of Boonesboro. Uh, in fact, it was a rather free-for-all sort of an activity. Uh, uh, I think uh, several of the officers were unhorsed and had to uh, hightail it uh, on their two legs. The uh, 3rd Virginia was in the middle of that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, when... Stewart came back across the Potomac with Lee's army, uh, they probably got their first Northern Virginia-type um, activity in the uh, October-November uh, battles up around Piedmont, Union, and such, uh, at which point uh, they really understood what Stewart's leadership was all about. On the other hand, they didn't think a lot of Tom Rosser, 
Rosser had to come in and take over when uh, uh, I believe Fitz Lee may have sustained. Uh, 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 I think he was kicked by a mule or something, and and Rosser took over and. Um, uh, they said he was handsome, had a bobtail horse, and made him look very gallant. But he was a very effective uh, uh, leader at that point in the war. And I'll jump way ahead to Tom's Brook in the Shenandoah Valley. They didn't think much of him back then either. In in uh, October of 1864, when uh, when uh, Custer and his division ran the uh, entire cavalry of the valley. Oh, gosh, what was it, a 20-mile run? Ran them away from their ambulances, their, their artillery, and that was Rosser again. Uh, so you can see where uh, Bob Hubbard, uh, he criticizes anybody and everybody when he feels they deserve it. Well, he, he does. He's very uh, free with his views, which is another thing that makes that book so interesting to read. Um, in particular, the idea of the... The, the ideal Confederate unit, the Virginia Cavalry, uh, singing songs, uh, wearing nice uniforms, following Jeb Stuart, running raids around the Army of the Potomac. Uh, sounds like a great place to be, but then you read this, and he is rather disenchanted with uh, the, the loyalty and discipline of some of his fellow soldiers. He, he really is, and it begins in that um, early part of the war where officers who enforce discipline are thrown out of office, and he says in no uncertain terms that this was the beginning of the end for um, uh, discipline fighting of the entire army in northern Virginia, because he said ever after officers were afraid to enforce discipline or they might be voted out if there was another organiz- reorganization of the army. Uh, he also doesn't think a whole lot of Jeb Stewart's raids. It's not that he objects to the raids so much, but that when the, uh, when the uh, uh, men get back from the raids, their horses are broken down, and um, what they have accomplished, for instance, the Chambersburg, or horse raid, as it's sometimes called, uh, what they ended up with were draft horses that they brought back, which weren't good for much of anything, and uh, and both he and uh, his lieutenant colonel uh, uh, Billy Carter uh, both comment that uh, that the men were were pretty worn out and broken down, and what they got for it was not a whole lot. Uh, intelligence gathering is something else, and uh, Hubbard would not been uh, would not have been uh, uh, involved with that sort of of understanding. But as far as the damage that was done to the enemy, he was very skeptical of, uh, you know, of Stewart's uh, um, motives behind some of that. So uh, the, the cavalry was perhaps not a, all it was cracked up to be, uh, at least from the inside view. We're going right. to take he another also, short if I break. I mention, too, he, he also doesn't... Uh, uh, Tom, I'm going to interrupt you. We're going to take oh, a little break okay. here. Okay. Uh, and and uh, let them run another message. But we'll come back in just a moment with more about the Virginia Cavalry on Civil War Talk Radio. What was Company Q? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
It's the one level playing field in business. The Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio. A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tom Nansig, editor of The Civil War Memoirs of a Virginia Cavalryman, Lieutenant Robert T. Hubbard, Jr., and in our last segment, we were talking about the career of Hubbard's unit, the 3rd Virginia Cavalry, and their adventures uh, both on the peninsula and in really every major campaign, practically, of the Army of Northern Virginia. One of the uh, tidbits that make these kinds of first-person things so interesting, uh, for me at least, are, are bits of information like Hubbard's description of uh, Company Q of the 3rd Virginia, or actually not of any regiment in particular, I guess. Uh, I always thought there were 10 companies uh, in an infantry regiment or 12 uh, troops in a cavalry regiment. What's this Company Q all about? Well, as as Hubbard at least explains it, uh, when a trooper uh, lost the services of his horse, either through combat, a wound, or or killed, or, or his horse literally broke down on him, uh, he had to continue doing service as a dismounted cavalryman. And at some point, he said uh, uh, somebody made a humorous reference using what he refers to as the final letter in the alphabet uh, as Company Q, meaning that it went well beyond the A, B, C, D companies and ended up at the end, the tail end, those guys on their, on their feet rather than on a horse. And... Um, I searched high and low, Jerry, to find out how he came to Q as being the final letter, and, and the closest I could come up with his reference was that with larger regiments, heavy artillery, and occasionally some uh, Union cavalry, I believe, they got up into companies L and M, and I suppose if they went farther, uh, N-O-P. Now, I, I haven't had a lot of of experience with those kinds of large regiments as far as reading of them or studying them, but that's the best I can come up with, that he figured Q was well beyond what you would name any company, and so he said we all thought it was quite humorous that this would be Company Q, and that's how it stuck. And that becomes a sort of generic term for the the kind of leftovers of the unit. It does. Either the sad sacks who don't know how or won't take care of their horses, and you may have noticed at one point uh, he blasts some of his uh, comrades who let their horses become ill on purpose so they can go home to get a new horse and let the other troopers do the duty, whether it's picket duty or whether it's going out on raids or what have you. Uh, and here again, he's, he doesn't spare the rod when it comes to his, his comrades. Not everybody was out there with the same gallant attitude he felt that uh, should have been shown. 
the the Confederate cavalry supplied their own horses, is that right? They did indeed, and of course, so many of these fellows from uh, farms and plantations had no problem uh, keeping a string of horses at home, uh, and so they might bring two to the uh, to to train on, and then occasionally he would either indicate that he was going home for one, or he would ask for, and he might say, uh, uh, "Have Davy bring me one." Well, Davy was one of the slaves. And so Davy would be responsible, I suspect, to take a saddle horse as well as to bring along or to ride that horse and find him uh, at Warrenton and Richmond, uh, up in, you know, the valley. And, uh, and, and so they could then, you know, re-up. He bought a horse at one point uh, up in Clark County, he mentions, for something like uh, $500 Confederate money. Uh, when his horse was killed in the Battle of Aldi, uh, he was almost trampled in one of the uh, charges there, uh, uh, Hubbard was, and his horse was killed, and so he had to go buy a new one. You mentioned Davy, uh, one of the, the slaves from his family plantation, bringing the horse. There's not uh, a lot about sort of the, the home life or the social life, as you would expect there not to be in a soldier's memoir, but I thought there was an interesting reference at the end of the war, uh, in a letter when he mentions how the, uh, what he describes as the Negroes on the plantation uh, are all uh, overjoyed with freedom, and they've basically stopped working. Right, and right. He, find, he uh, finds this they, irritating. Uh, yes, they understood what uh, emancipation meant, at least to the point where they didn't have to do what uh, Master Robert Sr. Uh, wanted them to do. Um, on the other hand, um, with those very few references, there may be ten references to slaves by name or otherwise through the entire 300 pages, but at one point, Jerry, he says, uh, if I could remember it properly, um, uh, Isham, or Isham sends his compliments, and I'm guessing Isham was his body servant, uh. give my love to all the family, white and black. Now, obviously, one would jump to the conclusion that was very patronizing, but the fact that he said it at all, and he said it in that way to all the family, white and black, would certainly at least speak humanely of Bob Hubbard. Well, it, it, let me push in a different direction, though. In, in this, we talked a little bit about this, I think, last week uh, uh, with Chandra Manning on the the role of slavery in the, the Southern war effort. Uh, in many cases, the, the Southern families really did, uh, Southern white families very sincerely, I think, believed, uh, as you suggest, that the whole plantation was one happy family, white and black. But in many cases, they literally were one family because many of the the, the slaves were light-skinned, were the, the children of some of the masters or the master's sons. Absolutely, and so, of course, it, it certainly would leave room for interpretation, no matter you know which direction you want to take it. Um, it. It struck me that that you know that that reference was certainly one that showed a degree of consideration, and of course, the use of those uh, of those uh, what would you call them in endearments, uh, mm-hmm. aunt so and so, uncle so and so. You know, we see those in the old movies. In fact. You know, they certainly did call the older slave men and women uncle and, and, and aunt. Um, on the other hand, if I can bring up uh, an incident that gets very little publicity, um, at the Battle of Reams Station, when the Wilson Coutts Cavalry Raid, a federal raid down into South Side Virginia, 
the, the Wilson and Couch columns were coming back, and they were trapped by Confederate infantry and cavalry, including the 3rd Virginia. There were several hundreds, if not a thousand, slaves that had come back with the Federal column. Many of them were chased across fields. Um, Hubbard references that knocked down, uh, fell down, and in a few cases shot or killed something, reference like that. Um, it's an incident that I would love to be able to find more information about. Chris Hawkins, of course, uh, works at Petersburg. He used to live not far from Ream Station, and, and I'm always on the pad uh, with uh, Chris sending an email uh, to catch up on old times, and I need to ask him if he knows anything more, uh, whether there was a deliberate uh, killing of slaves uh, in this Wilson-Coutts uh, battle at, at Ream Station, because uh, it doesn't reflect well um, civilians, uh, men, women, children, um, not at all the crater by any means. Now, well, let's um, but, but, uh, clarify this. You're, these were slaves who were trying, who had joined the Union column and were trying to leave, trying to return or, or get to Union Freedom. lines? Right, just like the slaves that followed Sherman's march to the sea. Okay, and, and then in the battle, Confederate forces were attacking them? Yes, he references it very briefly. It may be one sentence where Hubbard says... Uh, uh, chase the 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 uh, black slaves or the you know uh, uh, across the field. Uh, some of them with plunder on their from their master's plantations. Uh, and in my just... studies of the Third Virginia Cavalry back in '88 and '89, when I got the book put together, uh, there were one or two other references to uh, that uh, uh, sit- situation, shall we say, circumstance. Uh, it wasn't Fort Pillow, and it wasn't the crater, but it does reflect on the fact that in battle, uh, some combatants go a little farther than perhaps they need to. Well, that's a very good point. And just to, uh, to, to emphasize the fact there's plenty of blame to go around in these kind of situations, uh, there, there's an incident in the Western Theater where uh, the troops going toward, uh, I want to make sure I got the right... Uh, river. This, the Army of the Ohio encountered this in, I think, 1862, when troops following, uh, or troops being followed by a large group of slaves seeking freedom, are trying to cross a river. And after the soldiers are ferried across, the slaves are left behind on the other side of the river. I'm sure I've read or heard that mentioned. And it's, it surely happened with Sherman's army, perhaps more than once even. And those slaves are being left really to uh, to be at, at best recaptured and re enslaved, but at worst to be be uh, executed. Uh, sure, absolutely. And of course, if you had done something like um, you know uh, damage to the master's house before you left, you you yes, in the master's view, you'd be liable to to a severe punishment. Absolutely, and of course. Uh, these people found themselves to be such pawns in in the whole game of the military moving around, but you can tell, you know, that they knew if they followed uh, the blue columns that there was a chance for something better in life. That's right. Well, that, that's uh, there are many interesting bits in this this journal in this memoir of, of Robert Hubbard, and I know our listeners will want to get this. I believe it's published by University of Alabama Press. Yes, yeah, they were kind enough to. Uh, to pick up the uh, the option on it, and, and in fact, Jerry, I even do a Civil War roundtable slideshow on the toils and tribulations of finding a publisher when you think you have something worth, uh, you know, worth uh, uh, publishing. 
Well, it, it is always a struggle. I'll put in a plug for our listeners for my own uh, upcoming book from uh, Vantage. Uh, no, Vintage Press. I always get that wrong. Vantage, <laughs> Vantage is the Vanity Press. Don't 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 even mention that. Uh, Vintage, the real one, the arm of Random House and Knopf, um, will be publishing. Did Lincoln own slaves? And other questions about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, sometime in 2007 or early 2008. Uh, but I, I can share, uh, I'm, I'm sure with you, uh, stories of, of the process one goes through trying to find a publisher for uh, things we like. Sure, I will say your book is a very handsome one. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and I know our listeners will enjoy getting their hands on a copy and reading it. Um, before we run out of time, what happened to uh, Hubbard after the war? Or how did well, this war come to an end? Well, as I said, he was uh, wounded. Really, the only time that uh, that he shed blood uh, in in uh, the war itself was this grazing wound to his scalp. He went back to his home. Uh, he stayed on his father's plantation and became, I think, the understood designated heir to Cello, the name of the plantation. Uh, his other brothers had uh, either other plantations or the younger brothers went into professions. Um, uh, the oldest brother, James, who had been turned out of office, by the way, ended up as a trooper in the 4th Virginia Cavalry as a private, while uh, Bob ended up as a, uh, as a lieutenant and the adjutant of the 3rd. So things got tipped over that way. But he ended up being a very successful plantation farm owner. He owned uh, a small railroad, uh, a lumber company, a slate quarry, which that uh, Arvonia and Dillwyn area of Virginia is famous for. And uh, when he finally uh, died in, uh, I believe it was 1920 or so, I don't have the date uh, in front of me, uh, he really was looked upon as one of the more successful uh, uh, gentlemen, farmers, and attorneys in Southside Virginia. Um, you read, you read his, his obituary, and it's as if the classic Virginia gentleman had passed away. In his, some of his early letters, he talks about how he misses... Uh having any girls to talk Oh, he sure did. Uh, he, 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 he really w- w- was sad to be away from the social life. Did, did he find uh, uh, someone uh, eventually after the yeah, war? He did. He went up to the Virginia Hot Springs or White Sulphur Springs, one of the springs for a uh, little vacation, as families did and young men and women did, and, and, uh, and met a young lady there, got her a, a glass of water from the spring, uh, as I read one of the reminiscences. And uh, they married, and I believe they had a rather large family, six or eight children. Um, and uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, they lived happily ever after. In fact, they talk about how they were the ideal couple as far as hosting activities, parties and such, out at, uh, at Cello. And, in fact, he and his wife are both buried in the family graveyard uh, that's about 100 yards from, uh, from Cello, the home, uh, that's now owned by uh, by a, uh, a well-to-do uh, mine owner in the area. Hmm. Uh, there's a, a Willis Mountain is a is a, a funny sort of a mountain that that jumps right up out of the Virginia plains there, and this fellow has mined it in his family for years uh, for some sort of kryptonite or something, and uh, kyanite is what it is. Uh. And they bought the house, and it's been renovated, and it's still there. Well, good. Now, one last question. You mentioned uh, in your day job as an archivist, uh, in a note to me, you mentioned you have access to Civil War titles in various archives like the Huntington Library or the Newberry Library. Yes. Uh, And you can uh, 
You can film these? Yes, I, I work for what you may remember as University Microfilms. Yes. And it's now called ProQuest. And I am the genealogy and local history editor, which means I get to pick from seven libraries around the country anything that I think will be valuable to researchers or genealogist researchers uh, to be filmed and then put out there on microfilm or microfiche is usually how it's put out. And so I can ask New York Public Library to send me anything from their genealogy or history section as long as it's not too fragile. Uh, and I can lay hands on it, or the Huntington Library. Uh, I have had the woman out there who films for me film every regimental history and memoir that they have, knowing that that will be of value. So I now have access to all of that as well. Well, and, and is access available through other libraries then once those are filmed? If 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 a larger uh, state or city library. Um, uh, subscribes to the ProQuest Genealogy and Local History uh, program, uh, then they can have access to those items. They are both on microfiche, which are the cards, as well as now being put online so that they can look at these items and search them uh, on the computer as well. But it has to be a subscribing or a, a purchasing library, like the State Library of Michigan, I believe, has them. I see. Well, that, that is a, a great step forward in making research uh, more accessible to all of us, and it's good to hear about that. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. As it does happen, doesn't it? It, it does, but I certainly enjoyed our conversation and uh, enjoyed the book very much and recommend it to our listeners. Jerry, it's been great fun, and thank you so much. And uh, contact me if you need any research help. I will certainly do that. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.